When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is Amir Bar-Lev, who is the director of Long Strange Trip, a fabulous documentary on the Grateful Dead. Welcome, Amir. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to assume you're a deadhead. Do you remember your first exposure to the dead and their music? Was it a song, a record, a concert? I grew up in Berkeley, California, and I had a neighbor across the street. The kid was my best friend and his dad had um, Europe 72. Yeah. And then I had, like most deadheads, I had a mentor and he really gave me a full immersion in the Grateful Dead. And one thing I remember is that it was the time of mixtapes, you know? And so I, I kind of arrived at the Grateful Dead in earnest after a big you know, thing with like The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Floyd, all that kind of stuff. My instinct around my music collection with regards to cassettes was I would have, you know, Jimi Hendrix number one, Jimi Hendrix number two, Jimi Hendrix number three. And it wasn't arranged by albums. It was kind of, I, I don't know why I had this sort of mixes that I would make. When I started getting into The Grateful Dead, I went to one, two, three, four. He kept feeding me tapes. And then uh, he, he discovered with great dismay that I was editing the tapes and just sort of, you know, well, I, and I said to him, you know, well, I already have Franklin's Tower. And, you know, his jaw dropped and uh, he said, look, the Franklin's Tower from Great American Music Hall 1975 is not the Franklin's Tower, you know, from such and such 81. When I give you a tape, you just dub the tape. All right. Forget about how many cassettes it's going to cost you and all that kind of stuff. That was uh, really when I finally got it. So Brent died that summer, I think. And I was really loving the shows I was seeing. I became a picky deadhead. You know, we're talking about the kind of typology of deadheads. I was already a picky deadhead as a teenager, you know. Uh, One other Grateful Dead mentor I had once said to me, you know, if you're thinking about the set list, you're not high enough. (laughs) Which I disagree with vehemently still to this day, but you can see where there's some sense in that idea too. 
So anyhow, I, I was the type of person who's paying attention to this, the set list and whatnot. And I was loving what was happening in 88, 89, 90. Then I, I saw the dead directly after Brent died, augmented by some, some psychedelics and listening to the tape of the show over and over again, the night of the show. I didn't put things back in my brain the right way. I knew it as it was happening. I said, like, you're, you're, you're going down wrong roads here. And I wasn't old enough to understand that the Grateful Dead kind of ebb and flow. But I had this kind of, like I said, like an LSD in, infected decision, you know, that I, I just somehow like thought it was over. You know, I, I was very worried about the sound. And I went back to a couple shows after that. And sure enough, like my bias was confirmed. The, the crowd was loving every minute of it, which bummed me out even more because I thought like the whole thing was about listening carefully. And here they are. You could see they were struggling trying to put the band back together post Brent. And uh, I, I felt like I could tune in kind of to, to see that like something had been lost. At the end of this long winded story is I kind of stopped seeing shows more or less from 90 to 95, you know, which I regret to this day because I miss some great shows, you know, I mean, I miss some, some good shows anyway. And, and anyway, as I'm now, you know, pushing 50, I think about things in a very different way. You know, I don't, I don't look at it like a teenager does. Uh, I look at it, you know, like somebody who's a little bit more understanding of how ephemeral everything is. And despite, you know, my lousy feeling about some, some of the things that were happening in the dead scene and with, and with Jerry and whatnot, in the 90s. I think it would have been better just to go anyway and find something to enjoy. But there you have it. <laughs> I'm a picky dead fan as well. And one of the things that kept you going was that with multiple nights in town, if one show sucked, you always had another one coming. That's right. That's how I would I, I, I would have been if, if I had been myself back then, you know, the, the person I am today. And that's why I've been really loving the Dead & Co thing, you know, because I'm able to see how it's um it's not the grateful dead but it's a lot of fun and and has some great moments of music in it and yeah i'm i'm fantastically excited by this kind of renaissance that's happening and and try to go to as many of those shows as possible and just got off a a big jag of, of them out here on the east coast i agree and i love dead and company as well let's talk about how this project got started it's a fun story in a way. I mean, how it happened was it, it actually took 10 years to happen. And how it happened was I made a film um, about two old Czech Jews that came out like just after 9-11. And nobody saw it. I'm very proud of it, but it was, you know, it's a small film about a small subject matter. And it came out at just the wrong time. That was my first film, my first documentary. I was trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, I had the thought, well, gosh, nobody's ever really made a Grateful Dead documentary. Uh, you know, from growing up in Berkeley, I had some contacts. It's actually, I'm talking about Jahanara Romney, Wavy Gravy's wife, and, you know, this really incredible woman who uh, is part of the kind of Grateful Dead family adjacent, the hog farm. And she agreed to forward an email to Alan Trist, who was running the Ice Nine, the publishing company. And, you know, I kind of thought, I'll never, I'll never hear anything of it. Again, you know, it was a pipe dream, really. But Alan Trist wrote me back an email, a very gracious email. I'd sent him this film about these old Czech Jews. He said, I watched it with Hunter and, you know, we really liked it. And 
we, we'd love you to move forward. And I mean, I, I did a backflip, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, it can't be that easy. And, and of course it, it wasn't, you know, Trist, you know, remains a kind of an island of uh, sanity, <laughs> I'll say in that scene. You know, I collected allies in these 10 years and, and among them were David Lemieux and uh, who was, you know, a guy kind of my age who had also written a letter, kind of gotten, gotten in the same way I was trying to get in. And it worked for him, and he was pushing for me, pulling for me, um, and so was uh, Barlow. Somehow, you know, he he pushed for me, but it didn't go. It didn't go anywhere. There was a whole bunch of people who wanted to make this film. I got pretty far with Grateful Dead Productions, and then they dissolved more or less, and Rhino took over. So it was like shoots and ladders. I had to start at the beginning and work my way up through Rhino. I I think I kind of just outlasted everybody else who wanted to make this film. There was a time. I was in touch with somebody over there and they said, like, they basically told me it's down to you and one other filmmaker. We won't tell you who it is. It turned out it was Gus Van Zandt, I later found out. And uh, they told me, sorry, this other filmmaker got the job. And I just sat in my car and just tried to say to myself, look, just give it up. It's over. You know, like you, you gave it the college try. You gave it whatever it was, seven years, whatever. At some point in all this, I think around year seven, Barlow said to me, yeah, Jerry used to say, Grateful Dead Productions, the place where great ideas go to die. <laughs> anyway, at about year 10, um, I got a, a call saying, are you still interested in that? And I said, absolutely. I never stopped being interested in it. What happened to the other guy? I didn't even know it was Gus Van Zandt at that point. I said, whatever happened to the other guy? And apparently he had just gotten kind of spun out by everybody's craziness. So that's how it happened. And then, you know, I was very lucky to be able to find a team of uh, fellow deadheads, mostly, and, and then I started putting together the non-deadhead part of the team because I really didn't want it to be a fan film. I, I just find everything about The Grateful Dead interesting, but I wanted to make sure that there was a counterbalance of people who were really just good filmmakers who either didn't give a crap about The Grateful Dead or actually actively disliked them, <laughs> you know, as a couple of my, uh, couple of my teammates felt. You know, in, in retrospect, I think that was like really the the winning thing. And, and uh, you know, in a way, I kind of co-directed it with a guy who's kind of unsung in all this by the name of Ken Dornstein, who's another filmmaker. Didn't know anything about The Grateful Dead, you know. And the way we would tag team the interviews and I would ask the questions one way and then he'd come at it from a very different, you know, point of view. The result, I think, is, is what works and what made, you know, like uh, wives and, and husbands all over the world suddenly understand the Grateful Dead. Our couplehood, me and Ken, is sort of mimicked out there in the world of like somebody who gets it, somebody who doesn't. And this is the bridge. Martin Scorsese was an executive producer. How involved was he? And most importantly, is he a deadhead? He was blessedly not involved. When you make these kind of films, you want as few people in the, you know, cooks in the kitchen as possible. And, and you know, but what happened was uh, the band didn't totally trust us at first. I mean, they may not still, they still might not trust us. But the point is they, they were, their concerns were assuaged by the inclusion of Marty. He's not, he's not a deadhead, no. I noticed most of the band and family members, such as Justin Kreutzmann, who is also a filmmaker, were prominently featured in the credits. What were those working relationships like? Difficult to manage at times, relatively easy, or both? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the band, that was part of our contract with them is that they would get executive producer credits. People always see that, and, and I think rightfully so. They say, well, hang on, is this just like a, a piece of PR for the band? I, I think it's pretty clear that it isn't, you know, because, I mean, if it was PR for the band, it would it would be very different. But they there was one scene that they wanted taken out. We're just introducing that things are starting to get kind of dark. You know, I think Friend of the Devil is playing and Barlow is saying, you know, you know that the band was kind of beyond, the ethos was sort of beyond good and evil. And you're seeing that there's like Hell's Angels backstage and stuff. And at first, you know, I, I and it's, I'm just, it's embarrassing to admit this to you, but like I, I, I fought back, you know, at first. And at one point I told my dad, you know, I complained to my father about it. And he goes, let me get this straight. You made a four-hour film about the Grateful Dead's entire history. You've got all kinds of stuff in there. And the one thing they want is like a one shot. Take the fucking shot out. And that kind of snapped me out of it. And I realized I'd gotten off lucky. That was the extent of the editorial pressure I got from the Grateful Dead. Let's talk about the bits you did use. Interestingly, you use an Emily Dickinson poem to open the movie. Can you share that with our listeners and tell us why you opened with that? So the poem is because I could not stop for death. And, you know, I mean, the reason we started with it is because it's a beautiful poem about embracing life's ephemerality, embracing death. I think the Grateful Dead are high art, should be considered like Emily Dickinson is considered. And so actually, I really should credit my editor, John Walter, with this. It was his idea to put Emily Dickinson in there. His notion is if you don't like haul off and punch the audience in the face in the first five minutes, you're lost. You have to surprise the audience. Everybody comes into a film, particularly with documentaries, people come into films with expectations, and it's extraordinarily important to wreck those expectations early on. So that's that's why a lot of things happen in the first five minutes of this film. Um, that's why Death Don't Have No Mercy is like the opening song, which is a very somber, absolutely not the song you would think to put at the very beginning of a movie. And so that's why Emily Dickinson is up there, because you're not, you wouldn't expect that. Bits of Frankenstein run throughout the film as well. Is there a metaphor there? Well, there, there is, yeah. And uh, I have to credit again my editor that I was mentioning, John Walter. But I'll talk about this, the process, because I think it's a Grateful Dead kind of process. So, you know, the way, we tried to work the way the Grateful Dead work as best we could. And the way that I understand that the Grateful Dead work is through... Embracing everybody's weird idiosyncrasies. You got a rhythm guitar player who plays the weirdest rhythms you've ever heard. You know, Phil Lesh had never played the bass. He was classically trained and so on and so forth. Jerry invited everybody to give of themselves, you know, in these very idiosyncratic, you know, seemingly incommensurate ways. And that's what makes the Grateful Dead. And that's, that's why the Hells Angels are backstage and and so on and so forth. That's the eclecticism of the Grateful Dead. And it's very challenging to run anything, you know, whether it's a rock band or try to direct a film or whatever with that ethos in mind. But I'm inspired by Jerry in that way. So an example of how we tried to work that way is I had a different beginning. I think it was the Watts Towers. My editor came on the, the film a little bit late. And he's the guy I was alluding to when I, when I said he doesn't, he does not like the Grateful Dead musically, you know, he still doesn't. He was going through all the different interviews and I had totally discarded the interview of Jerry where he talks about that because it's it's originally done on this, uh, the, the American movie channel and it's got this gauzy lighting and, 
you know, Jerry's in bad shape. And it's not really about the Grateful Dead. It's about his love of, of having Costello meet Frankenstein. And it so happens that my editor also considers that his favorite movie. John, the editor, listened to this. And having listened to a bunch of other stuff, he said to me, this is the key to unlock Jerry Garcia. You're crazy to have discarded this, you know? You know, I, I said, okay, let me hear your argument for it. And his argument, you know, is basically that that this this is what holds this whole thing together. You embrace what repulses you, what scares you, you know? And just as Emily Dickinson talks about going to death, and just as Jerry invited all these people who play music in a totally different way than he does to influence and, co- you know, co- co-run the band with them and, you know, invite and, and refuse to say that Hell's Angels shouldn't be backstage and refused, you know, to come down on gate crashers in the 90s, you know, um, or at least was had to be dragged kicking and screaming to do that. You know, so too his young uh, embracing of this thing that terrified him in the movies, the, the image of Frankenstein right after his dad died, is a key to what makes the Grateful Dead so special. And when I say Grateful Dead, I'm including the fans and, and everything. So it, so that's why we chose the metaphor of um, Frankenstein. And we, we tried to do it in, in dream logic. If you really watch the film carefully, the metaphor actually changes. You know how like when you have a dream and you say, well, you know, you were there, but it, then it wasn't you, it was you and my dad. And then you turned into my teacher and stuff like that. Well, you know, we tried to do a lot of like making the message and the and the medium work together on the film. And so one of the things is like dream logic that spirals around and kind of comes back and has eddies and callbacks and stuff like that. And, you know, early on, he's talking about Frankenstein as being something other than him. Later, he becomes Frankenstein, you know, in our telling. And then at the very end, he becomes Dr. Frankenstein. You know, when, you know, he's saying, I'm tired, I'm tired, but he can't control the monster anymore in the 90s. That's kind of the idea is that, you know, you're kind of coming at it from all these different sides, but it's, it's one, one metaphor. You sort of answer my next question in a very Grateful Deadly fashion. Jerry Garcia was the de facto leader of the band, yet had a disdain for authority and said he would put up with the adulation until the fans, quote, come for me with the cross and nails. Phil Lesh had a great line where he said everybody listened really hard. That's how the Grateful Dead evolved. Did that kind of philosophy influence or drive the making of this film? I'm always trying to check myself and see things from, I mean, other points of view. And I got that. That's the Grateful Dead ethos, you know, is not uh, taking turns talking in the way uh, like a tennis match works, but rather listening and talking and responding to one another. You're listening to All Music Movies, part of the All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Amir Bar-Lev, who is the director of the Grateful Dead documentary, Long Strange Trip. I was really impressed with Sam Cutler, who served as tour manager for the Dead and the Rolling Stones for many years and sort of serves as a bit of a guide in the film. He's fantastic. What was your take on him? Yeah, so Sam Cutler... He's a kind of a dream interview subject because he's a raconteur. He's a fantastic storyteller. It's a well you want to keep going back to. And then I did do that. I actually, you can't tell from the film, but I actually did like five interviews with Sam Cutler. There's the interview that you see on camera. And then there are audio only interviews. I just wanted to have good, clean audio. And I took him into the edit to show him very particular things. And then I would stop the footage or whatever and ask him, you know, very specific kind of granular questions. You know, well, 
you know, why is Jerry talking to the cameraman that way? Why are they dosing the camera crew? Uh, you know, what's that look between the two of them mean? And that's why it's such a good interview with Sam Cutler, because not only is he such a smart guy, but also, you know, we, we really went deep with him. If you look at Sam Cutler's portional role in The Grateful Dead, as you know, there have been several managers. He, he doesn't rate. Like, he was only the manager for a couple years, you know. And there are other guys who, if you were trying to, say, like get, get the manager's perspective, it'd be unfair in a way to give him such an outsized role. But that's really the crux of what is different that I was trying to do than what somebody else who's making, like, a, the history of The Grateful Dead might be doing. And I take a lot of shit for it, to tell you the truth. It, it, there's a big difference between a Wikipedia entry and a film. And a film has to have a certain shape. It has to have characters, um, and it has to have a, a central story. We already know what we love about The Grateful Dead. And actually, there's like little Easter eggs all over that are for the deadheads. It's not supposed to be exhaustive. It's just supposed to be a good yarn. You know, it's not like saying... Uh, Sam Cutler was the only manager. No, it's just Sam Cutler is a really great storyteller. Bridget Meyer is a great storyteller. That doesn't mean she's the only woman who was involved with Jerry. Parenthetically, we did, we did desperately want Mountain Girl to be in this. We visited her, we begged her, but she didn't want to be in it, which is totally understandable and fine. I love Mountain Girl from a distance. You know, I don't know her too personally, but I'm a huge fan of hers, and I'm not at all criticizing her. I'm just... I'm kind of playing defense that some people say, well, this woman was dating Jerry for a minute and she's all over your film. And then you had Jerry's wife, you know, why isn't she in it? And that's the explanation that she didn't want to be in it. And, you know, even if we had convinced her, if you have to try really hard to get somebody into a film, they're not going to be good in the film. It's like, it's, it's who wants to get something out, you know, and tell a story and people like Steve Parrish and, He's another great storyteller, and that's what we did. And I'm sure we omitted several great storytellers. Again, it has to have a certain shape. So, you know, at, by the time you're in the late parts of the film, you're focused on Jerry and Jerry's health and, and the situation with Jerry. That's the story we're telling. So it would be crazy, you know, to, to suddenly start to say, you know, at, at this point there was a new keyboardist and they had a new album or whatever. That's not the rules of storytelling. That's the rules of Wikipedia, which we weren't following. Your movie is definitive for many reasons, but one, in my opinion, is you explore not just the band, but the whole culture and the scene that surrounded them. One chapter is Deadheads, which is an extremely important part of the band's story. Some filmmakers might have just mentioned that in passing to make a shorter film, but you give them their due. If you're going to try to tell a story about the Grateful Dead and you're not talking about the Deadheads, you just missed it, the whole idea completely. Like... And, you know, we had, we had the idea that, like, it would break up into these acts. You can't talk about the Deadhead Act without first just mentioning the Act 3, Let's Get in the Band. Because people like Parrish, Donna, you know, I mean, Wiz, there's a whole history. It's a porous border between the band and the fans. They were very clear that they considered all of us in the band. That's something super special about The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead is Steve Parrish. It is David Lemieux. It's every deadhead. There's a great piece of audio in, in, in Dennis McNally. Oh, Dennis McNally, another deadhead who became, you know, part of the organization. Dennis McNally, that book he has, Jerry on Jerry, comes with audio. In that audio, Jerry says, I wish I could just write a song that is just basically summed up. The words are just, we are here and it is now. You know, 
Like it's it's a great moment in the audio. You should seek it out because McNally says, "Well, look, a song like Ripple, that's perfect." And Jerry goes, "No, sometimes when I sing that, I feel like I'm preaching." Which is crazy. You could see how allergic he was to anything sniffing at all didactic to him because the song itself is about like, please don't follow me. I, I don't know, you know, if I knew the way I would take you home. Even that seemed like preaching to Jerry and he goes on to say, you know, something along the lines of, I just wish I could say it is now and we are here. Granted, he's very high on cocaine, you know, so he's really, really out there in this interview. But, but I love that interview because I, I think, you know, He's saying something that I think is very mystical, that like every Grateful Dead show is, is the only Grateful Dead show. And every person in the audience is part of the band at that moment. And that's, that's why we focus so much on the Deadheads. It's funny or ironic that the we are here, this is now mentality would sort of become touch of gray, which would be the lead horse in the journey into darkness, as many of these new fans didn't really understand the scene. I, I think it's very interesting, okay, the question of whether the Grateful Dead should last, right, is something that's really interesting and it's mystical and it's one of those things that, you know, the, the, the truth is the truth and then there's the opposite, which is also the truth. So even in the film, you hear Jerry say, I don't want to do the Watts Tower, I don't want to have a monument, I don't want the Grateful Dead to last, I'd like it to be ephemeral. But then later he says, I'd love this thing to go on past us. Maybe it's not even called the Grateful Dead. Maybe it's something different. But, you know, the notion we will survive is just in some weird way, it's kind of at odds with that Watts Towers thing. So it is kind of interesting, you know, and Jerry even says, we don't know where this is going, you know, and like it's uh, if you think of things in a kind of Jungian mythic kind of way. That song, you could say that song like cursed them, that notion that we will survive cursed them. But then you'd be wrong also about that because the only reason I'm taking my kids to see Dead & Co. last week is because of that song, (laughs) you know? And the only reason I made my film is because of that song and et cetera, et cetera. So the notion like, does the Grateful Dead die or does it live? Yes. And I love that. I love that about the Grateful Dead and I love that about Touch of Grey. That's brilliant. And another segment that would ensure that the dead survive was the tapers in the movie. Weir says allowing them to tape was the band's just doing the easiest thing possible. Manager Dennis McNally called it, quote, the greatest promo tool of all time. And the tapers also were a huge part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have anything else to add to that. Those guys said what they have to say about it. All I know is that uh, the scavenger hunt of tapes when you were a kid, like the scavenger hunt for records and record shops was such a big part of, of my musical experience. And it was so fun to discover stuff, you know, there are two, you know, you could say you kind of lament that like that's gone and that everything is kind of available now. I, I'm not sure that they really did predict the situation we're in right now. In some ways, you know, that, that might be sort of like missing the forest for the trees because McNally talks a lot about this in his book, you know, that the moment that that MTV really showed up was a moment that like in a way we're still living in the penumbra of that, the notion that image is so important. And I don't know that we've ever gotten out from under that, you know, and and it sucks to be a musician on some level today because of the changes to the industry and the fact that, you know, you have to worry about your Instagram and your this and that, you know, I mean, it's that part is is very ungrateful dead to me, you know, but maybe I'm just, you know, maybe the dark is from my eyes. I don't know. 
Let me ask you, in a movie chock full of memorable moments and scenes, I'm wondering if there's a favorite or one that resonates most with you. You know, uh, it's hard. I mean, they're all my babies, but I do love the whiz morning do scene. You know, I mean, that might be my favorite. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, it's really hard. I mean, we, we tried to edit it in a very, very dense way. It's made for repeat viewing. And so there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I get really excited by just because I know that it refers back to something and you have to probably be stoned on your third viewing. And then you're like, oh my God, you know, that refers to this other thing and that refers to this other thing. You know, I mean, I mentioned Alex Blavatnik, the financier. He he was incredibly patient. And, 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 you know, we had all this material to work with. Sometimes we had, you know, 18 tracks. And so we were able to really work, you know, not just linearly, but also uh, depth wise, you know, and so there's a lot of things I like that I see. And I think nobody sees that but me, but I love it. May I share mine? To your repeated viewing line, I went back to this one moment a couple of times. There's a talking head who's a fan who says, I love the lyrics to Dark Star, although you can't explain what it means. And then you cut to Robert Hunter, who wrote the song, and he recites the lyrics in Toto and says, what is unclear about that? It says what it means. And I just burst out laughing because that song is very hard to decipher. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I appreciate you uh, commenting on that, Steve. And I, I love that scene also. And that was a stroke of genius. I think that was my partner, Ken, said, you're probably only going to have like a couple seconds with this guy before he kicks you out of his dressing room. And he said, um, you should probably ask him something that's going to piss him off. You know, so I so what you don't hear is me saying, um, I, I know, Robert Hunter, how much you love, like explaining what the songs are actually about. So my question for you is, what does Dark Star really mean? So that was the setup, you know, because we just knew that would like piss him off. But again, you know, that that song is like a koan, you know, it, it, if, if you understood it. In, in the way we're thinking right this minute, then it wouldn't be as brilliant as it is. And the film has to, you know, launch into these poetic, paradoxical places if, if it's going to work, you know, so. The movie checks in at about four hours. Bob Weir says in the film, it's a real challenge to like The Grateful Dead if you're not a deadhead. And you've mentioned how this is a movie to explain both sides. It's a great film, and I hope everyone will settle in and check it out. Do you have any new projects, music or otherwise, coming up? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for saying that, Steve, and thanks, you know, for having me. And uh, and yeah, I am working on another big, long, strange trip type film, and I'm working on something similar right now, um, but about psychedelics. It's pretty different than Long Strange Trip, you know, but it's similar in a couple senses, and one of them is it's taking a freaking long time. Well, we look forward to it, and uh, thank you so much, Mary. Appreciate your time. All right, Steve. Thanks for having me. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights. 
and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.